You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. So just some context. So Pastor Ian was supposed to preach this morning. Um, last night, he reached out to Benji and myself and shared that him and his family, except for Olivia, they're sick. Uh, with the flu. So I do ask that you keep them in your prayers and support them by calling them and encouraging them. With that said, the sermon that we're going to look at this morning is a sermon that I have spoken a few years ago. So for some of you, it may be familiar. And for some of you, it's, it's new. But with that said, keep your mind focused on the Lord and tell someone beside you the title of my sermon this morning, Forbidden Love. God, out of an overflow of joy and contentment in himself, created the universe and all there is to make known the praise of his glory. With the command of his voice, creation came into being. He placed the stars, the planets, the seas, and all the creatures in their habitat. He then prepared a beautiful garden where his presence would rest, and placed Adam in this garden of Eden. He created Adam by taking the dirt of the earth and breathing life into him. He commissioned Adam to work it and keep it and to have dominion over all the earth. But God also commanded the man saying, you can eat from every tree in the garden, but that tree in the midst you must not eat. For the day you eat it, you will die. Then God said that it is not good for a man to be alone. And so he caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And God, saying that he would make a helper for Adam, took one of Adam's ribs as he was asleep and made a person and brought her to the man. And the man, with great affection, named this person woman because she was taken out of man. And they were one flesh, unashamedly naked, husband and wife. And together they were to be fruitful and multiply and bless the whole earth. What follows is where we find ourselves in our main passage that we just heard, Genesis chapter 3. The passage we read is a passage of immense tragedy. It is where we see the unbecoming of a paradise. It is where we see the invasion of sin, destroying all that God created for good. It is where we see our first parents cut off themselves from the presence of God for momentary pleasure and foolish ambition. It is where we see the serpent allure and tempt Adam and the woman to eat from the forbidden tree and thus incur the judgment of God. And this tragedy, this fall, results in Adam and his posterity, that means his children, all of his children, radically corrupted in sin. The fall so tragic still remains a tragedy today. For we know that because of Adam's sin and being a child of Adam, all have fallen short of God's 
glory, of God's standard of good. Adam, the father of mankind, brought upon all his children the corruption of sin, the guilt of sin, and the penalty of sin. We have all been imputed, credited, the sinfulness of Adam and so stand guilty by nature before a living and holy God. And all people everywhere are born under the condemnation and judgment of God. And this nature comes into action where we are standing in judgment before God, condemned before God because even of our choices, our sinful choices. So both by nature and by choice, we stand condemned before God. Knowing this, it shouldn't be a surprise that many of us have naturally in our fallen humanity, our flesh, sinned against God and others. And many times in our hardness of heart, we have found many ways to shift the blame away from ourselves. One such way to shift blame that we commonly hear is this. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. We see the woman say this to God in verse 13 of our main passage. The serpent deceived me and I ate. In a real way, Satan does influence, all right, and tempt sinners. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, where it says that our adversary is like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says that people follow the prince of the power of the air. But it wouldn't be appropriate for any person who has control, especially the Christian, to justify their sin by saying, well, the devil did make me do it. Implying that the devil somehow took control over your thoughts and feelings and your very actions. You are still responsible for the choices you make. You are still responsible for following the prince of the air. You are still responsible for sinning even if Satan himself deceived you. Another way we may shift blame for our sin is when we blame others. We blame society, we blame our upbringing, we blame our culture, we blame the entertainment industry, we blame social media, we blame the world. We see Adam do this by saying that the woman gave him the fruit of the tree, and so he hated. He blamed the woman. How many of us have tried to justify our retaliation towards someone by saying that they deserve it? How many times have we shifted the blame for our lack of prayer life by blaming it on our work schedules or house chores or the newborn baby? How many of us have entertained lust and envy by choosing to follow accounts online that specifically incite those godless desires in us? May I suggest that we are no different than Adam who blamed his wife. We are no different than Adam when we blame everyone else but ourselves when it comes to our sinful thoughts, words, and behavior. Another way we may shift blame for our sin is when we blame God himself. Adam says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, 
She gave fruit of the tree, and so I ate. It's the woman whom you gave. We see this in society, right? If God created a world of suffering, who is he that I should be answerable to? If a loving God sends people to hell for their sins just because they don't say yes to Jesus, who is he to dictate who I get to love on this side of life? God has the power, literally has the power to heal my body and change my situation. But if he won't do it, who cares what he thinks? I'll live my life. God made me like this. This is who I am. I'm not going to change. I cannot change the way I react when upset because this is how God created me. James chapter 1 verse 13 rebukes such ideas where we can justify our sinful behavior because of God. God created the garden with the tree that was also forbidden and yet held the man and woman accountable for eating from that tree. God is good. He's not evil. Don't assume God's commandments to not eat was evil. It was their disobedience that was evil. Don't assume God's supposed absence, for example, from suffering makes him evil. He's good even when sin and, uh, sin and evil bring about suffering. God is always good. He's a benevolent God. But if our sin does not come from the devil or people or God, then where does it come from? If we are to be blamed for our sin, not because of anything external to us, then where does it come from, church? Internal, inside. We've heard this verse many times before. Mark chapter 7, verse 14 and 15, where the Lord talks about the evil things that proceed out of, out of the mouth, out of the heart that proceeds out of the mouth of those who do wicked things, of the natural man. Sin is what comes from within. It is something that comes out of us, not something that goes into us. And all that comes out of us, the fallen nature, or in our specific case as Christians, our, our sinful flesh, it is merely the fruit of how we are rooted. This is a massively different narrative than the one you will hear the world proclaim. The world will say that people are good, people are fine, deep down everyone is good. If anyone is bad, they're just a product of a horrible society or culture. And in some sense, shifting the blame to others. Everyone may conform to good behavior externally, but internally are corrupt with sin as per the Bible. The only reason we are not as bad as we could be and not as evil as we could be is because God is restraining the very evil in the world. But the scriptures emphatically holds every person accountable for their sinfulness even if their outward behavior conforms to God's law. So even if you're behaving in a good way, if it proceeds out of a heart that is sinful, it doesn't matter to God. It's all it's all or nothing. Sin is not an outer substance that forces itself into us, but inner darkness that violently forces itself out. Sinners are not sinners because they sin, but they sin because they are sinners. Christians, for Christians, sin resides in our flesh, our earthly vessel, literally the human body. In our main passage, 
when Adam and Eve engaged in eating from the tree of knowledge, they engaged in something that was forbidden. And what I believe to be forbidden was a forbidden love. A forbidden love. A love that did not have the will of God in mind. A love that rejected the love of God and His instruction. A love that elevates self as God. And we can learn a fair bit about this kind of forbidden love in 1 John chapter 2. So turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2 and keep your hands there. The Apostle John here begins his letter talking about the eternal life that was made manifest and how in God there is no darkness. There is no evil or sin and we, we who have fellowship with God cannot go about sinning. We just can't do that. And so we arrive at our passage in John, 1 John chapter 2 where it says that if the love of the Father is in us, then we ought to no longer love the world. If God's love is in us, then we cannot love the world. The Apostle John, by the way, is not talking about the people in the world, but the very ideas of the world, the systemic sinfulness in fallen humanity. And he implies that those who love the world will perish with the world and its desires. But those who do the will of God abides forever. So what we see here in that passage is he draws mutual exclusivity between the love of the Father and the love of the world. The love of the Father in us and our love for the world in us cannot coexist. They're mutually exclusive. We cannot say that we have been saved and have experienced God's love if we are in love with the world. And expounding on what is in the world, the Apostle John offers three, three distinct categories or avenues through which we are tempted to sin. Just like how our first parents were tempted in the garden. My hope is for you to leave with an informed mind about how the world appeals to our sinful flesh. Our unsanctified flesh. Your sinfulness, your former life, your former self. And then give you instructions from Scripture on how to deal with these worldly appeals. My goal is for you to assess yourself. To see whether the love of the Father is truly in you. Or you have a taste for a forbidden kind of love. So let's read. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and this is what it says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and we'll skip, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So that first part, that first avenue, the desires of the flesh. And here's a truth statement from Scripture. Worldly desires crave sinful gratification. Worldly desires crave sinful gratification. 
When God created man, he created mankind, Adam and his wife, humans, good and upright. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29. And God made us to enjoy the pleasures of his creation within a godly framework. He created us to enjoy food, comfort, and even sex. He created our parents to enjoy each other, to enjoy the garden and all his creation. But our first parents were tempted to eat from the forbidden tree and horrifically disobeyed God and fell into sin. Instead of trusting the love of God by obeying his commandment, they went after a forbidden tree, a forbidden love. Genesis chapter 3 says this, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Was there no other tree in the garden? No. Was the desire to have food wrong? No. The problem was the woman and the man enjoyed food outside of the will of God, outside of the parameters of God's instruction. God prohibited, strictly prohibited Adam from enjoying food, food from this particular tree. Instead of trusting in God's word for true satisfaction, Adam's wife yielded to the serpent's temptation and ate from the forbidden fruit. And Adam, being the man of his home, the leader, the protector, just stood by. He just stood by and allowed a third-party individual Satan, to enter their marriage and even partook from that tree. So let me park right here for a moment and say this. Men, God has created you to be godly leaders and protectors of your home. If you are lazy and not taking initiative to lead and protect your home when you are single, you are in no shape to lead God's daughter. Your lack of leadership, protection, and sacrifice in marriage will allow the enemy to openly invade your home. Women, God has created you to be godly helpers of your family. But if you have a hard time helping in general and submitting to the authority God has placed in your life, from your dad to the pastors or elders, whoever it may be, then you are in no shape to be in marriage. If you disregard or undermine your husband's leadership and won't help him in marriage, you are allowing the enemy to lead your home, your home. Men, sacrifice your life and lead your wife as Christ led, leads, and loves, and did die for his church. Women, submit yourself to your husband, who is also under submission to God. Husband, let your wife be your crown. And wife, let your husband be your glory. Together, let your marriage reflect the beauty that God has instituted in marriage. So moving along, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, right? This is no different for us 
So if you think of all the ways you have tried to satisfy your fleshly appetite, how you try to satisfy good desires outside of God's will, you can notice this. God created us with a desire to enjoy food, for example, and all the rich spices and flavors that burst in our mouth to the glory of God. But the fall has twisted and convoluted that desire where we are prone to overeat and become gluttons and drunkards. God, who experiences community in the triune being of God, created us humans with the desire to enjoy community and a glorious picture of that is the union of a man and a woman enjoying sexual intimacy in marriage. But our flesh has gone crazy with a desire by twisting it to become a selfish desire that is just a click away online. Another example. God created us with a desire to work. He did. He created us with the desire to work hard and enjoy those com comforts we yield from that work. Comforts of life and bask in his favor as we labor to his fame. But our sinfulness has caused us to labor for who? Ourselves. Become lazy, maybe. Irresponsible. And captive to an extravagant, non-sacrificial lifestyle. In a gist, think of any desire that you have for something that is outside the biblical parameters or principles of God. Ask yourself, do you neglect your responsibility at home? Do you neglect your responsibility at church? Do you neglect such responsibilities by slavishly being at work all the time to make money so that you can travel? Do you sacrifice your generosity to pay for someone's meal so that you can retire at 35 or 45 or whatever? Do you enjoy the thrill of seeing new activity on your phone while neglecting the person who is right there in front of you? Do you eat uncaringly when you see all-you-can-eat sushi? Do you engage in sexual activity outside of marriage? Do you constantly think about enjoying the pleasure that comes from entertainment? How obsessed are you with celebrities and their lives? These are a few things where the world appeals to our flesh, tempting us to be irresponsible, stingy, ignorant, immoral, hedonistic, or idolatrous. There is nothing, by the way, there's nothing inherently wrong with food or clothing or chatting with your friends on your phone or enjoying entertainment. There really isn't. But the love of the world appeals to our flesh to desire these things and more without the will of God in mind, without the biblical parameters to enjoy these gifts and privileges in moderation within the context of God being the blessing himself. 
So how do we as Christians, so we've, we've seen this from Scripture. It's pretty obvious. So how do we as Christians overcome this? How do we succeed in such a temptation when our sinful flesh craves for sinful gratifications? What is the commandment of the Lord that we can follow, as John says, to triumph over such desires? Turn with me now to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. And this is what it says. But I say, this is Paul speaking, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Here is our instruction to overcome the temptation, the forbidden love, the worldly desire that craves for sinful gratification. Follow the Holy Spirit. Follow the Holy Spirit. The message is clear and straightforward from Scripture. Walk in the Spirit, meaning let the whole course of your life be led by the Spirit of God. So literally, follow God, the Holy Spirit, who leads us into all truth. John 16, verse 13. When we start to proactively pursue the Spirit, we are consequently, at the same time, killing the works of the flesh. Because they, do, they both are mutually exclusive. Paul says later on in Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap what? Life everlasting. Invest in your spiritual walk instead of your sinfulness. Invest to have the fruit of the Spirit. Invest by walking in the Spirit. Pursue the Holy Spirit by proactively loving others, being joyful in the middle of a crisis, being peaceful in disagreement. If you used to lust in your, fresh, in your flesh, choose to love instead. Choose to cut avenues that incite you to lust and position yourself in such a way to be sacrificial and selfless instead because they're mutually exclusive, right? If you are short-tempered in your flesh, avoid speaking immediately, especially when offended and just listen instead. If you lack control over what you say and how you be behave or get drunk when you consume alcohol, stop drinking alcohol and pursue self-control. If you are obsessed with the Kardashians and everything they do, stop watching their reality show that feeds your obsession. In fact, don't watch or anything or listen to anything that will feed your obsession. Okay, It's all about obsession. Obsession for sex, witchcraft, brutality, idolatry, or anything that is fleshly. When you invest, when you sow into your flesh, you will reap corruption. You will perish in your sins in hell. Adam and his wife chose corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, if you walk in the Spirit, if you follow the Spirit, 
you will not succumb to the cravings of your sinfulness and will grow in holiness. You will grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Brothers and sisters, please hear me. The world is always, always, always going to appeal to your flesh. Always. And it'll never stop. And every single moment, you choose not to invest your efforts and time and resources to listen, watch, or read godly material, obviously the Bible, right? And everything else related to the Bible is enabling the worldly desires to tempt you more and more strongly. And you will fall if you continue down this path. That's what the Bible says. Do not give in to your flesh for momentary ecstasy that consumes you, but invest in the Spirit for an enduring satisfaction that saves you. The next category or avenue that John, the Apostle John says, that is not from the Father, but from the world is this. The desire of the eyes. The desire of the eyes. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 again, and this is what it says. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The desires of the eyes. So here's our truth statement that we can observe from Scripture. Worldly desires covet earthly possessions. Worldly desires covet earthly possessions. These days, we are constantly being told how to live your best life now. We are being told the best way to live through Apple commercials, Hollywood entertainment, music videos, social media. We are being bombarded with how to live. And the Bible identifies the sinful system, the symptom as the desire of the eyes. A love to possess something that is not ours. Sexual lust is obviously definitely a big part of the desire of the eyes, but it is not the only kind of problem where we want something that we shouldn't have. It is a forbidden love for anything or anyone that has a visual appeal. A visual appeal. It is a desire connected with our discontentment. It is a desire... For materialism, it is a desire for sex, it is a desire for money, it is a desire for possession. Outside, all of these things, outside of the biblical parameters where those things may be desired. This is what the woman saw in the tree. For it says, Genesis chapter 3 verse 6, this is what it says again. So when the woman saw, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, Worldly desires covet earthly possessions. Worldly desires covet something that is not yours. Worldly desires covet something that is also not for you. The woman desired something that was not for her. When we, when we look at someone and want what they have, that is called coveting after their possession. It could be their house, their life, their spouse, their friends, their following, or even the way they physically look. And God's word strictly prohibits coveting. And the digital age 
does not help us in any way because now we have found new areas to lust over. We care about how many likes we get. We covet those who post amazing uh, traveling pictures on their feed. We envy our friends who own amazing cars or live in luxurious homes in the States. Some of us follow accounts that really create a sensual arousal in our hearts for such things. Here's a suggestion. How about we unfollow such accounts that tempt us to lust and envy, or better yet, just get rid of that account? Ask yourself, how easy is it for you to jump on the latest and greatest iPhone because the camera on your current phone is not good enough? How excited do you get when you know there is a sale going on even when you have unworn clothes in your closet? How eagerly do you download to watch a TV show or movie or something without paying for it? Do you frivolously spend your money when you're shopping for items that are of interest to you, that has a soft spot for you? Bags, watches, phones, TV, makeup, games, movies. You know, this materialistic mentality that the world has, where it's driving society to be super consumeristic, has also seeped into the church, right? A, a hyper version of this is the prosperity gospel. We know this. The allure of the prosperity gospel, right, is the visual appeal of being prosperous, prosperous, successful, and victorious, especially by that pastor or preacher or whoever is sharing, sold this much money, you'll get this much money back, look at me, right? That visual appeal. And those caught up in prosperity teaching don't realize that they are looking at the head of the uh, Ponzi scheme and its fall promises. So while this is obviously and you know, thankfully being weeded out of churches because of faithful preaching of God's word, uh, there is a more common problem that has come about because of worldly influence. There are Christians, professing Christians, who come to church only to receive, only to watch the band play, see the light show. Some people look for churches not based on the preaching, which is generally the central aspect of the service, but the kind of music and production quality of a Sunday morning and the welcome experience. Some of us come to church to only consume and receive, but not to contribute or give. May I suggest that if you are lacking the desire to contribute in the church, to serve in the church, you have a consumeristic mentality? Ask yourself, how are you contributing at this church? How are you participating in the church with the gift God has given you? Are you looking to serve where the church needs help or only where you see yourself fit in? Are you regularly serving in the ministry that you're a part of? Are you seriously prioritizing serving? Brothers and sisters, make sure that you are not coming to church only to receive. God loves you. He loves you. And in his word, he's calling you to 
participate with the gifts and talents he has given you, whether in the service or music or anywhere, wherever, in the church. The church needs people who serve so that they can be a blessing to the other people in the church. God has gifted you so that you will be a blessing for your brother and sister in the church. And everyone here who's a Bible-believing Christian, empowered by the Spirit of God, has a gift that has been assigned by the Spirit of God Himself to you. As Christians, we need to be aware that all that is enticing to the eye, visually appealing, will not satisfy our thirst for contentment, but will only feed our consumeristic mindset, our appetite for that. So now, we know this, and so let's turn our attention to how we can fight this, right? How can we fight against this kind of forbidden love, this worldly desire that covets earthly possessions? Colossians chapter 3, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on what? On things that are above, not on things that are on where? Earth. For you have what? Died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So here is our biblical instruction, the commandment from God's word to overcome the temptation that covets for earthly possessions, the lust of the eyes. Seek Christ above. Seek Christ above. Materialistic ambitions spring from a well of discontentment and each drink will further harden your heart from that which can truly satisfy the glories of Christ Brothers and sisters, if, if you want to fight the lust of the eyes, you need to set your affection, your love on something greater, something more brilliant than all the diamonds you could ever acquire, something more perfect than all the things you could accumulate in a thousand lifetimes, something more glorious than the picture of a woman or a man seducing you online. And that something is someone. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Church, we need to fight against this forbidden love that wars inside of us. And to be successful, we just need to set our affections, our love, our admiration on Christ himself. So when the woman saw that the fruit was as delight in her eyes, she traded her delight in God the Creator, for what God created. Okay, that was the transaction that happened in her heart. The Apostle says this well in Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. Claiming to be wise, and this is him making a, a general statement across all of humanity. Claiming to be wise, they, human beings, became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. 
People have traded the glory of God for the glory of created things. Whether it's yourself, your wife, your children, your animal, whatever it is, anything outside of Jesus Christ. The moment you make that transaction in your heart, that change in your heart, you're worshiping something that does not deserve worship and it is always going to fail you and thus incur problems in your life, consequences in your life, ultimately leading you to face the judgment of God. Do not trade your love for God for anything or anyone else. What does that mean practically? Do not trade your godly pursuit for purity, for cheap, selfish ecstasy by looking at another person lustfully. Do not trade your godly pursuit for contentment by envying the success of those around you. Do not trade your godly pursuit for stewardship by trying to fit into society's standard and getting AirPods when you don't have the money. How do we have godly pursuit? We are to seek the things above where Christ is seated, who is our life now. Now again, let me say this, which means any ambitions, any pursuits, any desires are to be centered around Christ, who is your life. But again, let me say this. There's nothing inherently wrong with AirPods. Okay, or homes or cars or anything for that matter, even money. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But wanting something outside the will of God is a sin. Here's another way to look at it. Is it a sin to desire marriage? Is it a sin to desire children? Is it a sin to desire a new job? Yes, those desires are sinful only if they are not centered around your faith, your love, your affection for Christ, who is to be your life. Romans chapter 14, verses 23, part B. This is what it says. This is Apostle Paul speaking. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. He was talking about the conscience and, you know, eating, if you're allowed to eat within your conscience, so not certain kinds of food. And then he concludes, he, he, he makes an encapsulating statement about any situation. For whatever does not proceed from faith, it is sin. Any of your ambitions, any of my goals in life, Anything that I desire that does not proceed out of my faith in Christ, where I pursue such things to the glory of Christ, it is sin, as per the Apostle Paul. So, if you desire marriage, don't simply desire because it is time for you to get married, or you want to be married, or you not feel lonely or have a companion. But desire marriage primarily in relation to your love for Christ. So what does that mean, for example, in application? God, I desire to honor you by being, you know, in my case, by being a man who will lead and love his wife as Christ loved the church. God, I want to honor you by, for example, being a mother who can raise a child in the ways of God. So will you bless me with a child? God, I want to honor you, for example, by being a provider for my home and a better steward of my finances and to grow in my generosity towards others. So will you bless me with a better paying job? Root your desires in Christ, who is your life. Seek Christ 
who is above in every request, in every walk of life. And this way, when, when you see Christ above, you're sowing into the Spirit and not your flesh. When you see Christ, you will not succumb to a forbidden love to covet earthly possession. Your prized possession will always be Jesus. And the temptation for earthly possessions won't lead you astray. So now, if your response to all of this is that, man, I don't have any of these sinful, lustful, fleshy eye problems, then, my friend, you definitely have the next one. The final category or avenue that John says is not from the Father, but from the world is this, the pride of life. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and this is what the whole thing says. Do not love the Lord or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desire, uh, desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever." Here's the final truth statement that we can see from Scripture, from this passage. Worldly desires celebrate self-supremacy. Worldly desires celebrate self-supremacy. I have my bachelor's in engineering. And during those days, I thought it was because of my intellect, right, that I would get this degree. I thought that if anyone could do it, it would probably be me. That's the way I, I used to think about it. In fact, I remember even feeling for a moment, for a moment, so much smarter than all of my uh, friends and peers who dropped out of engineering or didn't make it. And lo and behold, right, I didn't pass in my final year. And I had to wait a year to graduate over one course, right? If it was like a bunch of courses, fine. There's something really wrong that I had to figure out. But it was like everything was fine except this one course. So it really hurt. In that moment and that year of repentance, God crushed my pride and taught me through consequence, when I could have learned through conviction, through consequence that all my effort and all my thinking and all my hard work would not be possible if I had one nerve in my body be out of place. If I had my eyesight deteriorate really, really fast. If I had lost focus in my mind. And if I didn't have breath in my lungs and wake up the next morning, I, that degree, I would not be able to accomplish that degree. In that period of my life, God taught me that I'm a fool to assume that my successes in life is not a result of grace, his favor, his kindness. God crushed my pride. God crushed my sense of supremacy. The word pride here, in the original language, is speaking about someone who makes empty, pretentious, braggart talk about everything they have achieved or enjoy or can do and always sees themselves above others. The previous two temptations de dealt with things, with things that, with what you don't have. But this temptation, this godless worldly desire, this forbidden love can also deal with how you view yourself outside of the will of God with things you do have. In the case of the woman in the garden, it says that she thought that the forbidden fruit would make her what? Wise and become like God. So Genesis chapter 3 verse 6, this is what it says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes 
and that the tree was to be desired to what? Make one wise. She took of its tree of fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She thought, she really thought, her partaking, her possession of that fruit and eating from it would make her wise, would make her wise, like God. That she could be supreme in wisdom, like God. That she could no longer need the wisdom of God because she has wisdom like God. Brothers and sisters, do you see the reality of grace in everything you own, do, or have ever achieved? Whether it's your degree, your job, your spouse, your children, grandchildren, your physical stamina, or healthy body weight? Or do you see yourself as supreme in your achievements? Like as if you're in a vacuum outside of God's grace. Are you someone who likes to talk a lot about themselves? Do you enjoy talking about your wealth and possessions and getting that satisfaction of people you know, praising you for those things? Do you enjoy getting all the attention in the room? Do you brag about being in your profession? How do you want people to think of you? You see, the problem with Adam and the woman was that they didn't realize that being created in the image of God meant that they were to imitate God and not become God themselves, right? There's a difference. You're imitating God, but you're not supposed to be God. When God gifts you a good career, a good workmanship, a good family, a good home, a nice car, it is evil for you to boast about it and seek the approval, recognition, praise from people. It is evil and sinful for you to keep talking about yourself and your successes. It is evil for you to behave in a supreme manner towards other people, especially towards God. Brothers and sisters, the only banner that should reign over your life is a banner that reads, Sola Grazia, by grace alone. The Apostle John says that, if you have the pride of life, the love of the Father is not in you. So how do we avoid this? How do we beat this temptation? What does God's word have to say? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. And this is the Apostle Paul speaking again. And this is what he says. And because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here is our final instruction to do God's will and overcome the temptation that celebrates self-supremacy. Boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. 
Church, as a people of God, whom the Father has loved and has poured His Spirit into our hearts, into your heart, we should boast in the Lord and not ourselves. All of your possessions, your wealth, your education, your health, your career, your friends and family, all of it is a gift. It is just a gift from God. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Father. Every day when you wake up, thank God. He gave you another day to live, a gift that he has shown his mercy. He's given you another day to live, to, to go get educated in your school in this country, to go to work, to be employed, to make a living, to take care of your baby and raise them in the ways of God, to love your husband and enjoy him, to love your wife and enjoy her, to serve together in the congregation of God. It's a, it's a gift. All for His glory and not yours. The woman and man sought after wisdom to become like God and instead fell into sin. But God, so rich in mercy, now gives us sinners wisdom Himself. Right? The person of Jesus Christ, he's the very wisdom of God, the righteousness and sanctification and redemption from God. That is who he is. He is wisdom. Jesus is wisdom. And now God in heaven has given sinners wisdom. Let your boasting be in the salvation that God has given you. Like Jesus said, what would it profit a man if he gains the entire world, right? If he gains the entire whole, the whole world and then lose his own soul. Brothers and sisters, whether in sickness or in health, in plenty or in full, you have received the wisdom of God, Jesus the Christ. Boast in God's salvation of your soul. Boast in the Lord. And you will not yield to the pride of life. Your achievements or the things you have done in life, those are whatever. This is amazing. God, Jesus is amazing. And all of this, in light of that, pales in comparison. And to my friend who has not given up their supremacy and surrendered their life to Christ, you are under the condemnation of God. And if you are wondering why God can hold you accountable, well, let me read you our final scripture for tonight, for today. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, we're talking about Adam here, 
The many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus the Christ, the many will be made righteous. Through Adam's disobedience, sin entered the human race and all people by nature are condemned before God. They are children of wrath. But God, rich in mercy, sent his son Jesus so that all who have faith in him, in his perfect obedience up till the cross where he says it is finished, and then his resurrection to affirm his deity and his claim, you will be saved. We are the masters of our own undoing, the culprits of forbidden desires, the barbarians who revel in treason, the fools who exchange God for self. We are sinners, yet Christ died for the guilty. This is the gospel. My friend, I plead with you, to turn from your sins and to trust in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. When you trust him, his righteousness, his obedience will be imputed to you. And your sin will have been accounted for at the cross in Jesus. So don't harden your heart. Trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, who was also tempted. Who was also tempted in all these, like Adam and Eve. But unlike them, the first Adam, the second Adam using the written word of God, was able to overcome every temptation in the wilderness. Brothers and sisters who have the love of the Father in them, let us not entertain the love of the world. Let us not entertain any forbidden love. As we heard this morning, worldly desires crave sinful gratification, but follow the Holy Spirit and you will not fail. Worldly desires covet earthly possessions, but seek Christ above, and you will not fail. Worldly desires celebrate self-supremacy, but boast in the Lord, and you will not fail. May our God grant us the grace to love Him with all our heart and hate all that is forbidden. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this morning that you've come to us and spoken from your word. We thank you, God, that in your kindness you've allowed us to think about these truths, to pursue you, to think about ourselves and where we need to reconfigure our desires and to be in alignment with the Holy Spirit. God, you, you poured out your Spirit into our hearts, and so we bless you. And so, God, we are still plagued by our flesh in this earthly vessel, and we are longing for the day when you will glorify us with a new body where we will no longer have the presence of sin around us. But until then, God, Give us the grace, the very grace, the very power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the very power that raised him from death to life. We are praying that you would give us this power, this grace to walk in the newness of life, to walk with this new nature that you've given us, that this, with this new heart, with new desires. We are praying that this week, every morning, Every afternoon, every evening, every 
every night we will always see Christ as our centerpiece Christ as our focal point Christ as the foundation Christ as our goal we are praying Lord that you would lead us in such a manner that you would take and empower us that you would take us and empower us with your Holy Spirit and your word to crucify to kill our flesh to destroy it in any avenue that tries to feed our flesh we are praying that you will enrich our lives with brothers and sisters with 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 all kinds of paths where we can grow in our spiritual walk with Christ God we are praying for this we want to be sanctified by your word and your spirit this morning and we want to be continually sanctified as we move ahead in the ways of God have your way among us may your name be praised and we remember your son Jesus in his life death and resurrection we ask this in his name amen thanks for listening we hope that you were blessed by the sermon today if you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.